Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. She was like, you know, they just donated like a couple million dollars to the NAACP. They love the black community. And I was like, really? Is that what it means to love the black community? By day 10, Sephora became the first major corporation to commit to the 15% pledge. And since then, we've announced 28 major corporations as pledge takers. And we've taken over $10 billion and diverted that to black-owned businesses across this country. I would be lying if I didn't tell you that it's really, really hard. And for all of the companies that have taken the pledge, you know, Ulta Beauty, Rent the Runway, CB2, Hudson's Bay, there are a lot of other companies that haven't taken the pledge. Everyone has told me my whole life that things were gonna be impossible. And I'm constantly surprised by how wrong people are. That's Aurora James, fashion designer, entrepreneur, and founder of the 15% Pledge. When companies began making promises after George Floyd's killing about how they'd help Black-owned businesses, Aurora stepped in to turn that impulse into tangible impact. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Aurora because while the outcry over Black underrepresentation in business has receded from headlines, the need remains as acute as ever. Aurora's 15% pledge has shown how good intentions can be solidified into action and improved business outcomes on store shelves from Sephora to Ulta. She's found creative ways to engage Google, Vogue, and others, deploying an entrepreneurial playbook as well as clear data to leverage change. At the same time, Aurora's had to navigate obstacles for her own business when the pandemic brought things to the brink. But her steadfast optimism has carried her through, a testament to how one small, dedicated effort can deliver outsized results. Hi, listeners. It's Erica Flynn, VP of Alliances and Audience Development at Wait What? the company behind Masters of Scale. My day-to-day consists of nonstop communication, not only with my immediate team, but with our current partner relationships and with incoming leads from possible future partners, which is why I rely on the ease of Grammarly to keep my communication clear and efficient. One confusing email can turn into several confused replies, which can turn into an unexpected meeting which no one wants, needs, or has time for. Having Grammarly on hand as my trusted AI writing partner not only streamlines my extensive to-do list, it minimizes miscommunication by quickly and efficiently synthesizing information and carefully curating tailor-made responses to specific groups. In fact, companies that use Grammarly to communicate can save 19 days per year per employee. Grammarly eases the writing process. It's a writing partner from the blank page to the last word typed before hitting send. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com.
I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Aurora James, founder of the 15% Pledge and founder and creative director of sustainable fashion brand Brother Veli's. Aurora is coming to us from Brooklyn, New York, which is also my home base. Aurora, thanks for joining us. Hi, Bob. Thanks so much for having me. So since the pandemic hit, like many entrepreneurs, you've had to make a bunch of pivots and adjustments at Brother Veli's. And in the midst of that, you also launched a nonprofit, kind of by chance, by accident. I'm not sure how you describe it, but you initiated an effort in support of Black-owned businesses that became known as the 15% Pledge, holding some big retail brands accountable. I'd love to start with the 15% Pledge. Can you explain what it is and then take us through the story of how it came to be? It, it all started with just an Instagram post. Is that right? Exactly. In the wake of George Floyd's murder, I was getting a lot of calls and texts from people that were like, what should we do? How should we respond as a company? Who should we donate money to? And listen, it was a really difficult time for all of us. We were in the middle of a global pandemic. And at the same time that I was getting these calls, as a consumer, I was getting all of these newsletters that were saying, like, I support Black Lives Matter and we stand with you. And I was understanding what they were trying to do, but it really wasn't resonating with me as a human. I just needed companies to do more. A friend of mine called and was talking to me about a major retailer. And she was like, you know, they just donated like a couple million dollars to the NAACP. They love the black community. And I was like, really? Is that what it means to love the black community? I'm like, of course, a million dollar donation is wonderful and super appreciated. But if we're talking about a company actually being anti-racist and wanting to stand with the black community at that moment, I think it calls for something more. And she was like, well, you know, they're a major retailer. What would you want them to do? And I was like, well, black people in this country are almost 15% of the population. They should consider committing 15% of their shelf space to black owned businesses. And she was like, I don't think anyone can do that. And I was like, all right, cool. Let's get off the phone then. And I sat there on Saturday and quarantined in this apartment in Brooklyn and really thought about that proposition and what it would mean. As a founder myself, I knew at that time that we were estimating over 40% of Black-owned businesses to be closing during the pandemic. I knew you know, how tough it was for all small businesses in America, but seeing that the Black community was being hit especially hard. And you know, I knew what kind of value proposition that would mean for them if major retail Retailers committed to that. So I just sort of sat down and wrote it out on my notes on my phone and posted it to Instagram an hour later. And Sunday, I stayed up overnight with my web designer. We launched a petition Monday at noon. And then Wednesday, we became a nonprofit. And by day 10, Sephora became the first major corporation to commit to the 15% pledge. And since then, we've announced 28 major corporations as pledge takers. They've all signed contracts with the nonprofit organization, and we've taken over $10 billion and diverted that to Black-owned businesses across this country. When you first heard from Sephora, the first one, were you like, oh my goodness, this is actually working? Like, what did you expect to happen? Yeah, I mean, listen, Bob, here's the problem with me. Like <laughs> before I ever was on the time 100 list, I was on the time optimist list. So the optimist in me said, I'm going to put this ask out there into the world. I'm going to ask major retailers to commit 15% of their shelf space to black owned businesses. And I believe wholeheartedly that someone will answer my request and say yes. So I was really optimistic and I tagged the companies that I thought would be best suited to rise to the occasion. I tagged Sephora, I tagged 
Target, who unfortunately hasn't taken the pledge. I tagged MedMen. You know, the cannabis industry, of course, needs to show up in a meaningful way. They also took the pledge. And the rest, as they say, is history. So during that time, there were a lot of businesses that made announcements. We're going to do this for the black community. and We're going to do that. And there's some question about like, well, what's the longstanding impact of that going to be? So how do you think about this idea of sort of pledges versus action versus really making something happen? Well, great question. So I, of course, already had a full-time job running Brother Valleys, right? But I knew that if I was going to ask these major retailers to pledge in this way, I was also going to have to be responsible for holding them accountable, right? And that's why I launched the pledge, not just as an idea, but as a nonprofit organization. And when we talk about Nordstrom, for example, they signed a 10-year contract with a 15% pledge. So every quarter, we're actually sitting down, doing an audit with them, looking at how their shelf space is growing, what have been the pain points, making recommendations of Black-owned businesses for them to onboard, and really figuring it out. Because exactly what you said, Bob, like, there were a lot of commitments that were being thrown around. And I really wanted to make sure that we could actually pull it out into long-term meaningful change that was going to put actual money in the hands of Black American entrepreneurs. You guys did a survey at your one-year anniversary, the Collective Impact Survey. And it was that part of the effort to quantify and keep this impact moving forward? Absolutely. I think for me, what was important was doing something that was going to actually have a data set next to it, right? So we were able to say this year, okay, 385 Black-owned businesses have been onboarded onto the shelves of our pledge takers. So that's real impact. We're able to see those purchase orders. We know how many people work at all of these companies. We're tracking all of that. And so I think continuing to take that survey and data, all of that really helps us understand that this mission is important. We are all looking at the road ahead and saying, wow, this journey is going to be long. We're talking about racial justice, we're talking about climate change. It seems like it's insurmountable the distance that we have to go. We don't often take time to turn around and look at how far we've come, which is oftentimes so much further than we would have ever expected. And we need to also give ourselves credit for that too. So I think taking time to applaud the progress that we've made and seeing those data sets gives us inspiration to continue pushing forward even when it's hard. You really are an optimist, aren't you? <laughs> I am. Thank God, right? Otherwise, how would I be able to continue doing this work? You mentioned that not every retailer has embraced the 15% pledge. You mentioned Target. You were pretty vocal this spring when Target announced a commitment of a certain dollar amount, like $2 billion, which is a big number to Black-owned businesses by 2025, that that sort of wasn't enough. Yeah. I mean, listen, if you are going to receive an ask from a nonprofit organization, which right now is being run by 15 women, predominantly women of color, right? And they're asking you to make a commitment to the Black community and 
try to get to a goal of 15% shelf space, not overnight, right? We're asking people to take time and do this in a thoughtful way that makes sense for not just them, but also the black owned businesses. And it's not meant to be a sprint. It's meant to be a marathon, right? So if you're going to receive that ask, and if you're going to decline, (laughs) right, then I need to know like what you are doing, right? And if you think that you have a better strategy at place, then please like feel free to execute on that, but don't try to massage the numbers or present things in a way that might be confusing or just give us a headline. Like we really need to know and deserve to know the brass tacks of what the commitment is. And to be quite frank with you, Bob, I'm not that interested in press releases unless they are accompanied by some sort of external accountability partner. And that's really what we are doing for our pledge takers. And we're also, by the way, like building a community of some of the most progressive and incredible companies in the United States of America that really want to figure out how to do this together. And listen, like I am grateful that Target is trying to do some work and I still hope and suggest that they commit to the pledge because I think that we could strengthen the work that they are doing. But nonetheless, they're going to have to keep up with us. Even if people aren't taking the pledge, they're taking the pledge. That's what they don't realize. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned the collaborative part of the pledge. So not each organization is taking exactly the same pledge, right? Like some pledge takers commit to featuring more black owned businesses in their marketing and editorial content. Some commit to improving their recruitment and hiring and retention of black employees. Is that consistent across all the companies or each pledge is a little bit different? So the initial call to action was for major retailers, right? But as the pledge started growing pretty quickly, we started realizing that in order to accomplish this mission, right, of economic justice across the country, we were going to need a whole coalition. So American Vogue, for example, pledged with their representation, right? So now that we know there's going to be more Black-owned businesses at retailers across the country, we also need to make sure that people know about those Black-owned businesses. So having media partners like InStyle Magazine and Vogue Magazine commit to featuring and storytelling around those brands is incredibly important. Yelp, for example, took the 15% pledge and what they did that was insanely helpful to black business owners was creating that black business filter. So everyone in America is able to actually find the black owned businesses that are closest to them. So while Yelp didn't have a traditional shelf space, they were able to look at what they did as a business and make sure that they were able to support the black community in that way. And then also they have a lot of events and a lot of marketing. So making sure that 15% of that attention is also going to black owned businesses. Anyone that really wants to commit and take their existing business and figure out how to continue doing great business, but include black people in 15% of that is what we're really looking for. In your collective impact survey said something about how some companies doubled their percentage of black director level staff or above. So that's another way a company can participate. What's so interesting about the pledge is it starts off as a shelf space proposition, right? But in order to actually get to 15% shelf space, you actually end up having to address all of these other issues that are going on in your company, right? Because when I launched the pledge, most of these retail, well, I want to say all, but 
I'll just say most. They had no idea where they were actually at. From what we've seen, nobody was above 3%, and most retailers are 1% and below. And so you then have to ask yourself, how the heck did we get here? You realize, okay, your buying teams maybe have been the same for a really long time. They may also not be incentivized to be able to take a risk. How are you finding new brands, right? If you're like only ever picking up like the latest from Procter & Gamble, that's probably not going to leave shelf space for you for, you know, Brooklyn tea, right? And so really, we needed to start looking at what representation was across corporate, what board representation looked like, what their relationship was with HBCUs. In most cases, there was no relationship, you know, what they were doing for recruitment, all of these different areas, right? And really start doing some of that repair work. And listen, like, ultimately, what I always say is that everyone, even myself included, is a little bit guilty, but ultimately the system is to blame. And so what we have to do now is take where we're at and figure out how do we do some course correction with this system so we can sort of restructure it in a way that creates a world that is a little bit more equitable for all of us. Hmm. And you've also in the process of this fostering the other side of the marketplace, helping Black-owned businesses directly. I know you just announced a new partnership with Google to help on that front. Yeah. So we have a business equity community that I'm so excited about, which is a whole coalition of over 1,200 Black-owned businesses across the country right now. They are some of the most promising, I think, in the world. And we're really getting on the phone and having conversations and dialogue with each and every one of them to figure out how we can be most supportive and continue getting resources their way so that we can actually see them scale into the next crop of you know, unicorns and IPOs. And really, that is the proposition of the pledge. It's about supporting Black-owned businesses and advocating for Black entrepreneurs and Black future founders. Google helped us build the database, and they're also providing resources to us and working with us to create workshops and activations and programs in order to, A, help these entrepreneurs build community, but B, have more access to the tools and information that they're going to need. I'm an entrepreneur myself. I started my company, Brother Valleys, with $3,500 at the Hester Street Fair in the Lower East Side. Don't know if you've ever been there, Bob, but (laughs) it's definitely not, you know, Barney's. I definitely didn't have friends and family that I would be able to take money from to pay for my first purchase order. And, you know, a lot of black owned businesses have very extreme lack of access to capital. And so we need to help them figure out how to get the resources that they need, how to even negotiate the contracts that they're receiving, all of these things. So it's not just about giving a company a purchase order and being like, okay, here you go, make it work, grow your company, right? It's about giving them the tools and the mentorship and the access to actually be successful at the proposition. Hey, listeners, it's Jodine Dorsey, the VP of Live Events at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. I am constantly tasked with reaching out to teams across a wide spectrum of professions and the vastly different personalities that go with them. Grammarly helps me quickly shift tones to better communicate what I want to say and saves me valuable time in the process. Our upcoming Masters of Scale Summit event features top-tier speakers from CEOs to founders to political leaders. 
Grammarly's ability to produce on-brand writing helps me properly prepare for each and every thought leader I interact with on stage. It lets me generate the most exciting specialized content for our audience. In fact, teams that use Grammarly report 66% less time spent editing marketing content, which I've seen firsthand with my summit team. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Before the break, we heard Aurora James explain how the 15% pledge came into being and how an entrepreneurial playbook unlocked $10 billion worth of impact for Black-owned businesses. Now Aurora shares how her own business, Brother Veli's, pivoted in the pandemic at a moment of desperation in a way that actually improved the model and expanded her customer community. Aurora also talks about how she relies on optimism to help get through the toughest moments and why even when brands decline to partner with the 15% pledge, she can still have impact in pushing them along. And she makes a direct plea to the Masters of Scale audience about how together we can all do more. I want to ask you a little more about Brother Valet's because it's also focused on an inclusive and equitable approach. People that know me really can see that very clear parallel, right? Oh, the 15% pledge actually like is Brother Valley's in a different manifestation. So for everyone listening that doesn't know, Brother Valley's is my accessories brand. And I started it in January 2013 with the goal of preserving and growing traditional artisanal skills across Africa. So I started with a shoe called Aveli, which is a traditional Southern African, mainly South African Namibia, shoe. And when British people were in South Africa many moons ago, they happened upon this traditional shoe shape and brought it back up to England and created a company that we know today called Clark's. And they renamed it a desert boot, but it's actually a traditional South African shoe called a Veli. And so I created my company just based on that shoe shape and trying to save the shoe workshops that were in Southern Africa that were making that shoe that were just like folding rapidly. I grew and scaled that business by myself, which was incredibly difficult. I hit all of the roadblocks. I'm still here today and I was able to end up supporting a number of different artisans across the world. We've worked in South Africa, Kenya, Morocco, Ethiopia, Burkina Faso, Mali, Bali, Haiti, Italy, Mexico, Canada, and America. <laughs> and it's been a really wonderful, beautiful, exciting project. And I've been able to grow my company and, and sell millions of dollars worth of shoes and handbags. And that's been really incredible. You could have said, oh, I love those styles. I'm going to manufacture them wherever. You made the conscious choice that you wanted to preserve and expand not just the designs, but the system and the artisans and the communities where these sort of traditional goods were made. And this now extends across lots of different communities. Every single investor that I met with early on <laughs> was like, oh, wow, these shoes are really amazing. Would you consider making these in China? I mean, you would get such better margins, right? And that really wasn't what it was about. But to give you an example, so we work with a couple of workshops in Mexico making a traditional Mexican hirachi which is a really wonderful woven flat shoe. I worked with them a little bit, altered the pattern, sort of used slightly different materials. And when Meghan Markle started wearing our Hirachis a couple of summers ago, right before the pandemic, not only did we sell out, 
all of the artisans basically who were making harachis and selling them sold out. And for me, that's really what it's about because with Brother Veli's, because of the way that we're sourcing our materials and a lot of it's sustainable and animal byproduct, it ends up being a slightly more expensive product, right? So our harachis, I think, are 230 to 260. That's more than what you would buy a harachi for just on the street in Mexico, right? But when we actually look at the labor that goes into making those shoes and, you know, what it costs to actually pay people fairly for their work, it ends up being quite expensive. And when we break down the margins on some of what is made artisanally and sold in the marketplace, we realize that it's actually not sustainable for people to be working for those prices. So when we take these traditional shapes and put them in a luxury space and pay and train artisans appropriately, what we hope we're doing is raising the bar for what they can expect to be paid from outside communities for their work. You've got a store in Brooklyn, though most of the sales are online. And as you say, you work with these artisans all over the place. How was that process and that part of the business impacted by the pandemic? I can imagine that you had some disruption. We had big disruption. People definitely were not trying to buy shoes, let alone like heels or anything like that, handbags during a global pandemic when we're all uh, staying inside. For me, first and foremost, I was just concerned about the artisan communities and the staff that worked for me, right? So we really pivoted most of our workshops to start making masks because in many situations, we were kind of the only people with sewing machines in the community. Our dust bags that we often sell the shoes in, we're, we're using those fabrics to make masks. And in terms of getting the materials that they needed to be able to make shoes, I mean, that really wasn't happening. I had a couple thousand of artisans who, you know, were looking at an uncertain future. And I had a business that was also suffering. And I sort of put the three things together and we were able to create a program called Something Special, which is actually a subscription model where we used what was locally available to our artisans to create small home goods. And the first thing that we did, for example, was a mug that was made by a female collective in Oaxaca that were all quarantining together. My customers uh, subscribed to this subscription program. And so we were able to sort of work with all of our different artisan groups and say, okay, this is what we can make together. We had carvers in Kenya that were making special things. And it's been really beautiful to be able to support different artisans and makers and at the same time bring these really special, thoughtful things into the homes of my customers for $35 a month. And it's a really great way for communities to support each other through a really difficult time. And I'm really proud of that program. It was a great pivot for Brother Valleys to make during the pandemic. It's like it's a completely different business, though, right? Completely different business. Right before the pandemic in January of 2020, our average order value online was $680. And five months after the pandemic, it was $79. Totally yeah. different business, right? We were going from mailing shoes to people to mailing like thousands of mugs. <laughs> It was a tough pivot, but it was a necessary pivot. And my gosh, how grateful am I that we were able to do something like that instead of just folding, right? Like 40% of the other Black-owned businesses across this country. So I'm so grateful for that. Is this going to continue to be part of your business? Absolutely, it's going to continue to be a part of it because it's a really, really, really incredible way for us to support all sorts of different artisans across the world. 
we're already working on like a fan, like a hand woven hand fan for June of next year that's being made in Kenya. We're using grasses and we're using wood. So there's farmers that are being supported and then there's weavers and there's carvers just in one product. And then it brings my customers so much joy because listen, I have what, a quarter million followers on Instagram, right? Rest assured that all of those people cannot afford to buy luxury shoes. So having an opportunity for them to be able to be involved in Brother Valleys and what we're doing for $35 a month is also incredibly important to me and has been one of the greatest joys of the pandemic. And I don't want to leave them out of our community based on what they're able to afford. You mentioned at the very beginning that just before the start of the 15% pledge, you were getting lots of calls from people in business and retail and elsewhere coming to you for context and perspective. You run a Black-owned business. What can we do to help foster the community? I can imagine those questions have not diminished. Does that burden get tiring for you? <sighs> yes. <laughs> I would be lying if I didn't tell you that it's really, really hard. And for all of the companies that have taken the pledge, you know, Ulta Beauty, Rent the Runway, CB2, Hudson's Bay, like there are a lot of other companies that haven't taken the pledge. And some of those companies I've spent countless hours on the phone talking to CEOs or chief merchant officers or people who just don't think that they can do it or they're afraid to fail. And what they don't realize is that they're actually already failing. The inability to commit to actively trying to make that sort of difference is the fail, right? And sometimes we get so paralyzed by the magnitude of what it feels like to be the problem that it just, we can't even act at all. And I think for me, some of those conversations are so tough because I know what kind of impact they can have. And, you know, listen, like when I first launched the pledge, it was like pretty confrontational. And anyone that knows me knows that I'm not a confrontational person, right? But on social media, I'm like, I need you to do this. You have to do this, right? It was like very, you know, aggressive. And the people that have relationships with me know what my heart is and know that I'm incredibly collaborative. I was raised in a household where there were a lot of really wildly different opinions. My father was born and raised in Africa. My mom is white. She was adopted at birth. I was raised a lot by my grandmother. And, you know, we've had to have a lot of tough conversations over the dinner table. So there's nothing that anyone can say that can surprise me. But Bob, like, I will tell you, it is tough to talk about racial justice every single day. Sometimes I just wish that I could sit down at a dinner and have someone turn to me and be like, did you see that Britney Spears Instagram post? <laughs> you know, but that's like not the conversation that people are having with me right now. It tends to be a little bit of heavier stuff, but it's OK. I'm here for it. What's at stake in this moment right now? Everything's at stake. This time is so incredibly critical for all of us. We're dealing with racial justice. We're dealing with climate change, which is also a racial justice issue. There's a ton of greenwashing that's happening. So 
Disinformation is rampant. You know, the kids are having a tough time knowing who to trust, where to get their information from. They're suffering from anxiety and depression. We're all spending increasing time on social media, which we know is, you know, horrible for our health. And we are all also being pitted against each other at every possible opportunity, right? It's like a divide and conquer. And we have to coalesce as humans and have tough conversations in community and promise each other that we're going to do our best. Despite all those challenges, you are optimistic. Where does the optimism come from? I mean, listen, everyone has told me my whole life that things were going to be impossible. That's not possible. This isn't possible. It's never going to happen, right? And I'm constantly surprised by how wrong people are when they say never and impossible. If I had have called a whole bunch of people before I decided to post my pledge ask on Instagram, everyone would have told me I was out of my mind. They would have been like, there's no way that LVMH is going to agree to let Sephora change 15% of their merchandising. Sephora Canada, by the way, Bob, pledged 25% of their shelf space going to BIPOC-owned businesses. 25%. I mean, we're literally completely changing what that store looks like. People would have told me I was out of my mind. And we're doing it. It's happening. And guess what? It's incredible business for them. All of our pledge takers are coming back to us saying, like, not only was this the right thing to do, it's also one of the best business decisions we've ever made. And it's been incredible for team building. And what I know is the power of the people. And when people are passionate about something, they are relentless in that pursuit. And what we need to do is get each other inspired and get each other feeling passionate about creating actual positive change. Because when we do that, the change will happen and we see it. We see these like glimmers of moments of hope where these incredible things happen that give us chills. Well, I I love your energy (laughs) and I applaud your optimism because I do think we need more of it. And like you, I believe that optimism does unlock incredible potential. Our audience are a lot of, you know, business owners and business people. Is there anything you would say directly to them? About the 15% pledge, about what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, to anyone listening, I think, you know, it's really easy to say, wow, the 15% pledge, that sounds great. And I'm so happy these other companies are doing it. But ultimately, there is a way for every single company to commit to the 15% pledge, whether it's in your B2B, you know, whether it's in your shelf space, whether it's in your pages, whether it's in your financials in another way. You know, I have Every kind of idea about how Silicon Valley can take the pledge, you know, literally everyone can take the pledge. We've been working with a ton of companies as well to figure out what that pledge taking can look like and how we can continue to support this ecosystem and really change the landscape of America's economy and make it a little bit more equitable for everybody. Aurora, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I do hope people keep coming your way. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Berman, CEO of Wait What and co-host of the Masters of Scale podcast. Like many of you, my to-do list changes by the minute. Whether I'm working with partners or hashing out legal documents or brainstorming with our team, there is never a shortage of tasks that require attention and constant communication. 
Like Masters of Scale co-host Reed Hoffman, I know artificial intelligence is a huge part of our future. And Grammarly is an enterprising leader in AI. With Grammarly, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. It's like having a collaborator for my writing, helping me generate better first drafts and tailoring messages to our specific audiences. It's not only a superior AI tool, it is a safe AI tool. And as a CEO, security is always top of mind. Grammarly has 14 years of experience and a business model that never sells our data. Security has been a priority since day one and continues to be integral to Grammarly's values today. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely using sanitized audio gear. I'm your Rapid Response host, Bob Safian. Host for Masters of Scale is Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producers are Jordan McLeod, Christina Gonzalez, and Marie McCoy-Thompson. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Daniel Nissenbaum and the Holiday Brothers. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nault, and Mike Gallagher. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Sarah Sandman, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Charlie Manessis, Adam Heiner, Anna Pizzino, Ben Richardson, Mina Kurosawa, Saida Sapieva, and Colin Howard. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale Courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.